one part of the series so far. How many of you have been here for all five of them so far? Well, that's crazy because this is part four. So, um, you people are good. So you can let me know what I'm speaking on next time then. That'd be helpful. Uh, now, hey, if this is your first time um, in church, and I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up if that's true, or if this is maybe the first time back in a while, uh, it might feel like you're kind of coming back, you're kind of walking into the middle of a movie is what it might feel like today. Um, so if later today or if uh, early this week, if you'll go to our website, and each week I've been kind of walking you through different ways to get uh, access to our content online. If you go to our website, which looks like this, and uh, you just uh, you select media up there, it takes you to a page that looks something like this. This, this screen changes every week depending on uh, you know, the, the newest message. You can listen right there. You can hit play. Or if we zoom in a little bit, Josh, you can see down here, you hit resources. You can download it to your device. Or, uh, yeah, you can do that. You can share it. And sometimes there's a little uh, extra bonus right there. Remember last week I gave you a little card, or like two, time, two weeks ago, last part, I gave you a little card like this. And if you missed that, you can, you can download it right there. So, um, and uh, did you say you are doing your homework? You aren't doing your homework. Well, that's quite an admission. Okay, so if you <laughs> would like to... Okay, let's do, uh, and then the next page, if you want to, that's the, the most recent uh, episode of our podcast and our media player. Then you get your archives, and uh, you'll, they're in order. You can search by date, you can search by series, by speaker, by title, and there's about, thank you, there's about uh, 25 pages of content like that on our media player right now. So I've talked a lot about podcasting and our online presence and uh, I, I've heard some people say they're not sure they want to really do the podcasting thing. They're, they kind of are suspicious of it for some reason. Um, it's why they want hard copy CDs, which we still do. You just got to wait a week now. We don't do those automatically. Um, but they want those so they can store them in their fireproof safe, in, you know, for in case, of the, in case of apocalypse, that they can come to the surface with their beans and CDs and preserve them for future generations. Here's the thing about our online platforms. Uh, all the content we've ever posted online is still there. So we've got about four and a half years of content since we've been started doing that. Um, and you don't really need about going to iTunes someday and it just disappeared because it's probably not going to happen. Anyway, we're in part four. as the end of the commercial. We're in part four of this series. And I think, I think we've got one more in, in this one, I think. We'll see. Maybe two. Uh, if you haven't been here for the whole series, we started back on, on the 6th of May and... Uh, I want to try to give you some context for those of you who haven't been here all along. Um, and if you'll, you'll hang with us and if you'll commit to uh, maybe going back and listening to the first three parts and filling in all the blanks, I think you just might benefit from that. And if you've been here for all four parts, uh, thank you for sticking with it and for making it a priority and for all the feedback that you've given me. It's been great. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's helpful. The whole idea behind this series, it, uh, behind this idea of a waiting room experience is built on the question, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when you're stuck? What do you do when there's a set of circumstances and they're just not going to change? You got a report from the doctor and this thing isn't going to kill you, but there is no cure. They can treat it, but they can't cure it. It's going to impact your life from now on. It's just the way it is. Maybe it's a relational thing. It's not like you want to walk away from your marriage, but it's not going to be the way you dreamt it would be. Or it might be all right, 
Maybe there's some baggage that you've discovered that you weren't expecting. Maybe there are some barriers that you didn't see coming. Um, and when it comes to your marriage, it's like you've been in a waiting room kind of experience for a long time and uh, you don't see a whole lot changing. Maybe it has to do with your finances or your education or your career options. Uh, maybe it's a dream you had for your kids, for your adult kids, and, and that's just not going to happen. Maybe it's an addiction, and you don't see it as an addiction, but everyone around you knows it is, and it's created this waiting room scenario for you, and nothing is changing. And the fallout from all that has created a brand new reality for you. The question is, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when there's no way forward, when there's no way out? What do you do when the only way out and the only way forward is unethical or immoral or illegal or unhealthy or just unwise, what do you do? We've said that when we find ourselves in these kinds of uh, parenthetical chapters of life, uh, it's, it's easy to come to the conclusion, well, first of all, I'll never be happy again. And you start thinking back to those times when you were really, really happy. And sometimes you've got to go all the way back to middle school because, man, those were happy days, Right? You've convinced yourself they were. We start to think nothing good can come from this. And the last thing you want to hear this morning is some preacher get up in, in, in a church setting at a podium and say, you know, don't worry about it. It'll all work out. God has something great in store for you. It'll all be good. Because you're like, no, 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 just give me the microphone, that one that works, and let me tell you, let me, you just make sure you hit record, and let me tell you my story, and let me help you understand the real world, Mr. Preacher. You'll agree nothing good can come from this. This is a bad one. Then there's a tendency to think that there's no point in continuing. There's no point in being responsible. There's no point in accountability. There's no point in living with a moral standard. There's no point in having sexual boundaries. There's no point in even trying to do the right thing anymore. There's no point in staying in this relationship. There's no point in being kind. There's no point in being generous. There's just no point. So we turned all that on its head a few weeks ago and said that regardless of the circumstances, you can be happy again. Something good can come from this. And there is a purpose behind the pain. Every once in a while, you bump into somebody, and they are so unique, and after you tell them your sad story, and you're thinking you're finally going to get some compassion, then they tell you their story, and there's no doubt that their story trumps your story, and you're kind of feeling bad that you even told your story now. You know, you wasted their time, and somehow they have joy, and somehow they have confidence, and somehow they continue to pray, and somehow they continue to believe in God, and somehow they've managed to not to run ahead of God, and somehow they didn't, you know, run screaming from the waiting room, even though it looks like God wasn't going to come through for them, and, and there's just something extraordinary about people like that. And I'll tell you, it, sometimes it is so easy to get focused on the prayers that God is not answering, and we lose sight of what God is up to, and what he may be doing behind the scenes. So, what this series has been about, and I want to remind you of something I've said every week in this series is really important, especially if you're not a Christian. It's just so easy to just dismiss Christianity as a pie-in-the-sky, wishful thinking, you know, kind of thing, and I get that. So much of Christian subculture would, would leave you with that impression. But what I hope that we'll never forget, maybe for those of you on the outside looking in, or maybe you're here still checking it out, not sure what you think of the whole thing. For those of you maybe who are making your way back, I hope you'll remember that the people who brought us the New Testament, the people who brought us the narratives of the story of Jesus, the people who brought, up, brought us the teachings and, and make up the, the epistles in the New Testament, those foundational documents of the first century church, these are men and women who were not unfamiliar with adversity. In fact, these men and women were very familiar with adversity. I mean, if, if we looked at their lives compared to our lives, their lives were like this long, unending uh, sequence of events that we can hardly identify with in 21st century North America. And yet these were men and women who believed 
and they maintain their faith. And for them, not unlike millions of Christians all over the world today who are oppressed simply because they're followers of Jesus, that's not in the past, that's in the present. That there's, in their minds, there is no conflict between a faithful God and a difficult life. And we get so hung up on this. They didn't have any trouble at all. I mean, we let it derail our faith sometimes. But they understood something about God and who he is and how he operates that we oftentimes miss and misunderstand. Now, when I think about how the message of the gospel even made it out of the first century, ever made it out of Palestine, ever made it out from under the efforts of Jewish rulers to squash it, and then out from under Roman oppression, it's just amazing to me that the message of Christianity survived at all. It, between the authority of the temple and the authority of the Roman Empire, it should have just squeezed this little narrative to death and sucked the life out of it. It should never survive the first century. And yet, today, a third of the world's population believes that Jesus was, at the very least, a great teacher, or that he came from God, or that he was God in the flesh. I'm not saying a third of the world's population believes in him as their savior, but at least they view him positively and have let his teachings impact their lives. And the people who brought us the story of Jesus, and the people who brought us the words of Jesus, and the people who brought us the story of the first century church, they were not strangers to adversity, and yet they continued to believe and to put their confidence in God. So what I want to talk about today as we begin to look for a place to land with this series is just the one word that the New Testament authors and Jesus in particular emphasized over and over when we find ourselves in one of those waiting room seasons in our lives. And it's, the word is belief. There's something, uh, there's something very, very specific that we are called and instructed to believe. And the reason we're instructed to believe this is because we don't intuitively believe this. So we don't need to be instructed to believe things that we intuitively believe, right? So there's a reason for us being instructed because we don't naturally think this way. In fact, left to our own without this instruction, we tend to believe just the opposite. And yet beginning with Jesus and continuing with the apostles and over and over we're told that when we face adversity, when we're in a set of circumstances and it seems like this is our new normal, it's not going to change, it's not going to get better, it, this is just the way it is and the way it's going to be, there is something very specific that we are to embrace. There are several places in the New Testament where we find this. Uh, I'm going to use this particular passage this morning because of who wrote it. And again, the person who brings us these words, it's important to know who, who's writing the words that we read in the scripture and the context of what they're writing and who their audience was and all that. There's something uh, about that because it gives it, to me, it gives their message credibility. In fact, uh, Jesus himself said some things that I would never say on my own. Um, things like, don't worry. Because when I say that, it comes across as insensitive and I don't care, which may be true, but, uh, but Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. And because it's Jesus talking, we know his word is credible and we know his words carry a lot of weight. So we need to lean into that. That's just an example. So I want to read for you some words that I would never say because I don't have the moral authority to say this on my own. And yet these words are so pivotal. They have been catalytic in the lives of so many Christians, followers of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, uh, there's still something here for you today because there are principles to be gleaned here. This is so central to what uh, we've been taught, especially in the New Testament, as it relates to the waiting room experience. The person that wrote these words is uh, James. James had a very famous brother. His brother was... Wow, that was interesting. I heard Peter. I heard John. I heard Jesus. Does anybody know with any kind of authority who James' brother was? Very famous, very famous. 
James, the writer of the epistle, his brother was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <gasps> I know, it's crazy. Well, there's multiple Johns, there are multiple James in the Bible. You've got to dig a little bit. You've got to look in. Sometimes the New Testament itself doesn't provide us the information. You've got to look into uh, that first century history. I know, I'm, I'm sorry for the former Catholics in the room. Just blew your freaking mind. Sorry. And you're like, that's heresy. No. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Uh, and if that goes against your tradition, I'm sorry, you, you probably were taught that, and I, I get that, that Mary didn't have any other children. The Catholic Church landed there hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years ago, to preserve this idea that Mary was not only a virgin at Jesus' birth, which we believe wholeheartedly, but that she remained a virgin, as the Second Council of, Ken, of uh, Constantinople decided in 553, some of you remember that, that's where the idea of, the, of, of, of ever... Wow, this is, where, this is where the idea of ever virgin came from. So you can believe whatever you want to believe about that. But I believe that Mary had other children because it's kind of uh, the historical record says that. And James was one of them. And there's a reason why this is important. One of the things that makes uh, this epistle of James so interesting is that James, the brother of Jesus, did not show up anywhere else during the ministry of Jesus. You're like, yeah, yeah, it's a James, and a different James. James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, right? Different, different James. In fact, Jesus kind of distanced himself from his earthly family. So James doesn't show up at all. He wasn't a disciple. He wasn't a follower. He's never mentioned as even being in the crowd or anything. Like he wasn't even there for a free lunch at the feeding of the 5,000 or any of the miracles or anything. But then at the end, after the, resur after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, James shows up and becomes a leader in the church in the city of Jerusalem. And he and Peter are like the two guys, okay? And they founded the church in Jerusalem. And, they, and James ended up staying and pastoring. A, and James suffered enormous, enormously because of his faith, listen, in his brother. This is wild. I don't, how many of you have a brother? How many of you have a brother? Wow, okay, so you can identify. Maybe not answer out loud, but what would it take for your brother to convince you that he is the son of God. Think about that. You can do, I mean, he can do all the miracles, all the magic tricks, you know, write all the bestsellers, but dude, you are not the son of God. You're a great magician, nice tricks there, wrote some good stuff, but you're still not the son of God. But James comes to the conclusion that his brother was his Lord. Man, that's, that's crazy. What convinced him? Wasn't the teaching of Jesus because it didn't show up any time when Jesus was teaching. Wasn't the miracles. He wasn't around for any of that and there's no evidence of that. It wasn't the crucifixion. There's no, no word about Jesus was a, kind of abandoned by his family except for his mother. It was the resurrection of Jesus. Because when your brother makes all these claims and predicts his own death and his own resurrection and then he pulls it off, yeah, now you're showing up. Suddenly the resurrection happens and James comes to the forefront. And shortly afterwards, he wrote something. And if you own a New Testament, if you have access to the Internet, if you have the Bible app on your mobile device, you have access to something that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote. I don't know what other kind of stuff you read, but this is better, okay? <laughs> this is really cool. And, and I, I know, you've got to read the paper because you've got to... Do people still read the paper? I don't know. Did any of you read the paper? How many of you buy an actual paper? 
and read the paper and still get newsprint on your hands, okay? How many of you uh, read it online? How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? Okay, good. Uh, how many of you subscribe to too many magazines? Okay. How many of you read every word of junk mail that you get? Because you feel super important. Okay. You got, I, know, I know you read everything on Facebook because you got to. I mean, it's just, Kevin does, I know. But you, I'm, t- I'm telling you, whatever you believe about the Bible, whatever you believe about Jesus, you have access to something written nearly 2,000 years ago by somebody who grew up in the same house as Jesus. That's pretty cool. So James, the brother of Jesus, writes this epistle to primarily Jewish believers in the first century. These are people who were born into Judaism. They were Jewish by birth, and they were Jews by choice, by faith. That was a faith they chose to practice until Jesus came along. And now they had become followers of Jesus. And in this little book, he tells us, and if you're, going, if you're going through a tough time, if you're facing adversity, if your situation is uncertain, if you can identify with this waiting room scenario, if you're in a waiting room kind of circumstance, there's something that you have to believe. So what, that's what we're going to look at. I want us, it took long enough to get there. I'm sorry. James chapter 1. We're going to walk through a few verses here, starting with verse 1. You can follow along in the app or on your, in your Bible or on the screen. Verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> refers to his brother as his Lord. That's amazing. If you're still wondering where you land with Christianity and with Jesus, this should make you give it some serious consideration. He says, to the 12 tr- uh, tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And that's when we were just like, uh, uh, I'm not doing that. No, don't get carried away. Like, dude, it's verse 2. Really? No. You got to warm me up for that one. James says, consider. And the Greek word here is, is pretty interesting. Basically saying, you know, okay, stop, wait, wait. When bad things happen and you kind of go into a funk, when bad things happen and you want to hit the ejection seat, when bad things happen and you fight it and you try to change it. But James says, instead, I want you to embrace a different mindset towards adversity. Uh, instead of considering it terrible, though end of the world, my life will never be the same. I'll never be happy again. He says, I want you to think about it as a source of something good. Again, to which you would raise your hand and say, well, yeah, that's nice for all you people. Can I tell my story? There's no way this applies to me. James, James is like, hold on, we're just getting started. It's verse 2. I just finished my greeting, so we're just jumping in. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And the word that's translated trials in the Greek is usually used to describe something like uh, a robbery or a shipwreck. Um, I don't know if you've experienced either of those. Something that takes you by surprise. You're not expecting it. You're just kind of going along, doing your thing, minding your own business, and, you know, boom, there are some big, bad circumstances that take you by surprise. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. When something takes you by surprise, when the doctor needs you to call, when your spouse decides that they don't want to be married to you anymore and you didn't see it coming, when your kids call and it's 1 a.m., when your boss asks you to come into the office late on a Friday, when you're assuming the worst and... He says, I, I want you to think about adversity as a whole, in a whole new way. I want you to consider that it could be the source of something good. And again, I wouldn't make this up. This is James, brother of Jesus, pastor of the Jerusalem church. He continues, verse 3. Because you know <clears throat> that the testing of your faith, let's just stop right there. We've got to hit the pause button here. Because this is an enormous, enormously important statement in this conversation. 
James affirms what we suspect, that whenever you hit a bump in life, it tests your faith. We know that to be true. We experience that. It tests the integrity of your faith, that trials put your faith on trial, don't they? Because trials make us go, really? I, th I thought I always believed, but I don't know. I mean, I was minding my own business. I was trying to be obedient to God. And then, you know, out of nowhere, I mean, I've been a good person, God. Are you kidding me right now? And James acknowledges this when he says the testing of your faith, that every set of negative circumstances, every adversity, no matter how it compares with someone else's adversity, is a test of your faith. Do you really believe? Will you continue to believe? Can you continue to be obedient? It's essentially, he's saying, trials test our confidence in God. And don't they? <laughs> trials test our confidence in God. And I'm so glad he added this because it lets us know that he knows that what we're thinking. And he continues, verse 3. He says, you know, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So trial produces persevering faith. And, and this is uncomfortable, but we know it's true. That trials produce persevering faith. When you read the New Testament, you read the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the apostles. And James, here's what you discover. That if Jesus spoke on behalf of God, and he did, and if the Apostle Paul spoke on behalf of God, and he did, and if the Old Testament spoke on behalf of God, and it did, God seems to be honored by persevering faith. So here's the deal. Faith that always gets a yes from God, who's impressed by that? That's hocus pocus. That's prosperity gospel. That's not the real deal. The faith that impresses us the most is when it's faith that gets a no from God, gets no answer at all maybe, and continues to endure anyway. That's impressive. You've heard it. You know, I lost my job on Monday and my world fell apart and I was up all night and I prayed and I fasted all day Tuesday and on, I got a better job on Wednesday. It all worked out. Glory to God. Things work out for good. Hallelujah. <sighs> I got the diagnosis. I got the phone call. You know, I got online to let everybody know, ask everybody they know to pray for me. Hundreds of people were praying and I went back to the doctor. No cancer. I'm healed. Love those stories. Those are great. You know, I don't want to discount that. But you know what? When we hear stories like that, especially when they're validated, we aren't naturally impressed by God. God doesn't initially get the glory. Do you know why? I don't know about you, but like, I'm more focused on how did you make that happen? What's the formula? Teach me to pray like that. I want, I want results like that. Are there some magic words? Is it a magic position? Is it, what's the combination? On your knees, say these words. On your face, say these words. In whatever. How did you do that? I want, I want to do what you did so I can get what you got. But if you want to know what honors God, it's the person who believes anyway. It's the person who trusts God anyway. It's the person who perseveres anyway. And throughout the entire Bible, I mean, the, the Bible is full of these stories, Old Testament, New Testament, God is honored and God is glorified by persevering faith. That's why James says, okay, look, when the bottom falls out, when things are tough, when you've been stuck in the waiting room forever, when you go into a nosedive, before you quit praying, before you tear up your Bible, before you decide that you're never going back to church. Wait, 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 wait. It's possible that God is up to something good. In fact, you can be certain of this, that God is up to developing persevering faith in you. And you may not even want persevering faith. I'm not even sure I want it all the time because I don't want to have to go through what it takes to get there. But the persevering faith thing, that's what's most honoring to God. And trials, James says, produce 
persevering faith. And then he gets to the first imperative. Everything so far has kind of been peripheral, but now he gets to the first imperative, this first thing that we must do, his main point. This is the thing he wants us to take away, uh, verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work. Let perseverance finish its work. In other words, God is at work in you. And God is at work in me. And we can hit the eject button. We can hit the divorce button. We can hit the affair button. We can hit the debt button. We can hit the bankruptcy button. We can hit the alcohol button. We can hit the run button, the lie button. We can hit all kinds of buttons to relieve our pain and escape our circumstances. But Jesus says, wait, wait, wait. Or James says, wait, God is up to something. God is up to building in you the kind of faith that honors him the most. So let perseverance finish its work. There's a sense in which when you think about this, when you think about your waiting room experience, that maybe is in your past or maybe it's right now where you're living. Think about the greatest source of tension in your life right now. Don't look at them, just think about it. <laughs> could be an adult child. Could be a child child. Could be in your marriage. Could be something financially. Could be something at work. Could be something with your health. Think about your greatest source of tension in your life. The thing that just absorbs your thoughts. When you pray, it's what you pray about. Here's my point, listen. The tension in your life right now could be the focal point of God's activity in your life. You're like, no, 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 it's the focal point of his inactivity. No. That thing in your life that you wouldn't wish on anybody else, you would love to kind of wish it out of your life, that very thing is at the epicenter. It could be the focal point of what God is up to in your life if you will allow it to be. By staying engaged, by embracing it, by allowing perseverance to finish its work. One more thing about this. Perhaps... Um, for some of you this morning, your story is that at some point in your past, you hit a bump. You had a crisis of faith. You just uh, thought you were spending way too much time in the waiting room and you hit the eject button, you know, and you abandoned faith and you abandoned the Bible and you abandoned the church and you abandoned all your friends in the church and you kind of abandoned God and you just walked away from it all because something bad happened. Instead of enduring, instead of persevering, instead of trusting God anyway, you hit the eject button. Let's be honest, that did not make your life better. And some of you are like, oh, tell me about it. Because I've been around church long enough to see dozens of people do just what I'm talking about. And they ran into adversity and they thought they'd been in the waiting room long enough because it had been like a whole week and they got impatient. And they walked away from the church and they walked away from their Christian friends. And believe me, I know because I've had enough of them walk away from me. And ultimately they walked away from God. And not once have I heard them say, oh yeah, that was the, looking back now, that was the best thing I ever did. I made better decisions. I've been healthier. My relationships are better. I'm more generous. I'm more compassionate. I'm just a better person once I got God out of the picture. Never heard that story. So James says, let perseverance finish its work. Because at the end of the process, your persevering faith is going to bring more honor and glory to God. It's going to leave you in a better place. Let's finish the rest of the verse, verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How do I become a mature Christian, Todd? What class can I take? You should offer that class here. Is there a book I can read? Don't you have a discipleship class or a new member class? I want to sign up so I can be a mature believer. I want to sign up now. Like, I'm ready. James says, you want to become a mature Christian? Allow perseverance to finish its work. 
We're like, that's nice, James, but what else you got? Because I'm not, I'd like another option. How about if I memorize some more scripture? Oh, that's great. Like, absolutely do that. That will, that'll make you smart, but it won't make you mature. What if I obey like every commandment? Well, that's great. It makes you obedient. That doesn't necessarily make you mature. I love what I discovered about how this reads in the Greek. The word finish here is the same Greek word as mature. So literally, it reads like this. Let perseverance complete its work so that you will be complete. Let perseverance complete its work so that you will be complete. In other words, if you don't allow perseverance to complete its work, if you don't allow uh, God to work through that process all the way, you'll never be complete. If you don't allow perseverance to mature you, you'll never be mature. You'll not be complete. You will not be mature. You will be lacking something. So here's what he's telling us. And Jesus taught this as well. The truth is, we know this anyway. There's something about perseverance that makes us stronger. There's something about perseverance that makes us deeper people. There's something about perseverance that makes our story more compelling. And, and this might be a new idea for you, depending on the kind of church tradition that you've grown up in or what maybe you read or what you listen to. But this is throughout the scripture that spiritual maturity is always measured in terms of persevering faith, not perfect behavior. I'm like, oh, darn it. <laughs> I know, right? What God does in the life of a man or a woman who stays there, who stays in the waiting room and, and allows persevering faith to, or perseverance to finish its work, it's inspiring, it's attractive, it's compelling, and it causes you to take notice and eliminates all of our excuses. And you find yourself thinking, I don't want to become like them the way they became like them, but I would like to be like them. I'd like to have that kind of faith. And that's why James says, come on, here's the command. Let perseverance finish its work. Here's the other cool thing about this passage, because James is also a realist, and he knows what we're thinking. He knows that we're like, no, I don't like this at all, James. Let's, let's talk about prayer or sing a song. Let's feel good. Let's change the subject. You know what I want to hear, James? I want to hear about how to get God to answer my prayers. That would be a better, that'd be a better way to start this book. How do I get some more of my prayers answered? That's what I want. And James is like, I don't even really know what you're talking about. So James knows that we have all these frustrations, so here's what he does. Next thing he says is so practical. This next verse by itself is kind of cool. But listen, like most of the verses in the Bible, you can't read it by itself. Most of the time to lift the verse out of its context, we discovered this a couple weeks ago, and take it by itself is doing it a disservice. It's changing the meaning of it. It's making it say something it's not intended to say. So this verse is most effective and most applicable when you read it in the context, which is what we're doing today, when it's connected to what we just read. So verse 5. If any of you are facing adversity, okay, or you're, you're, you're in the valley of the shadow of death kind of thing, if any of you are facing a trial, if any of you are surprised by bad news, if any of you are in a waiting room experience, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. It's so incredible. Well, first of all, I, I've, I've seen this verse read, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Not what the verse says. This verse is talking about wisdom in the face of trial. And James is like, I know what this is like. I know what it's like to be blindsided. I know what it's like to be doing everything right and then everything goes wrong. I get that. And when you find yourself in the waiting room circumstance, when it seems that there's nothing you can do, ask God for wisdom. Literally, and you've done it. You've, 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 you've done this anyway. It's like, God, what's going on? What's, what's, what's going on here? Where are you? And James says, pray this prayer. 
God, show me what's going on. Give me your perspective on this. I need wisdom. I don't, I don't want to quit believing. I, don't, I feel like I'm going to go there and I don't want to run away and I know I'm going to be tempted to do that and I don't want to hit the eject button. I know that's going to be easier and I don't want to do something stupid because that's my tendency and I don't want to compromise and I don't want to make my life more complicated. So God, I need wisdom. Wisdom within this context is simply the ability to see current circumstances within a broader context. That's what wisdom is in general. Wisdom is the ability to see current circumstances when I'm so fo- focused on, on, on my pain, on my relationship problems, on my disappointment with my husband, with my wife, with my kids, with my frustration with my job, my finances are upside down, I don't see a way out, whatever it is, we get very focused on current circumstances. Wisdom is the ability to see what we're frustrated about, what we're disappointed in, what we're confused about, what we feel lost in, in a broader context. If you're a parent, you get this, right? Because you get home from work and you're middle schooler and, and I apologize to any middle schoolers in the room because this obviously wouldn't be applicable to you because you're much more mature than this scenario. But your middle schooler is locked in a room and she won't come out because what's his name broke up with her? He, well, he talked to another girl and her world is falling apart because this was it for her. I mean, he was the one. I mean, she should know that she's 11. And this was, this was her Prince Charming. And I mean, this is, this is it. And you look at this and you're like, if you're a halfway decent parent, you know, you act all concerned. Oh, I know, there, 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 there. And you walk out into the hall and you're like, um, if only that was my problem. <laughs> you know, I would give anything for a middle school problem right now. But to your middle schooler, it's a big deal. And you're like 40 years old and you're looking at their middle school problem within the context of 20 years of adulthood. And you're like, it's not really that big a deal. She'll be fine. So James is saying, ask for wisdom. Say, God, I need a bigger context. I need a broader perspective. I'm not even going to ask you to change the circumstance. That'd be cool. But I'm not going to ask you to change the circumstances. I'm not going to focus on that. Because I understand that's not generally how you work. And I don't want to run. So give me wisdom. And James says, God's not going to be upset or put out or bothered by that request. In fact, he says, God will answer that prayer for the person who's allowing perseverance to finish its work. Get the whole context. I pray a dozen times a day because I'm super spiritual like that, but because, no, I pray because I'm desperate. I pray all day long, God, give me wisdom in this situation. Give me wisdom with this person. Give me wisdom to see as you see. Give me wisdom to see as you see. Mm. If we can make that the prayer that characterizes our life and our conversation with God throughout the day, God, give me wisdom to see as you see. God, my emotions, to recognize, my emotions are a little jacked up right now, so give me wisdom. I don't know if you ever experienced that. Help me see this. Help me see him. Help me see her as you see them. Give me wisdom to see as you see. And I'm not asking you to change it right now. So that might be a, a, a change in the way you pray. But I just believe that if I saw this the way you see it, I would be able to respond in a way that honors you. So God, give me the wisdom to see as you see. That's what James says we're supposed to do. He says, consider it pure joy, when you have all kinds of trials, it'll take you by surprise and it'll sneak up on you and wreck your plans and ruin your dreams. Consider that joy. And in the midst of that, allow perseverance to do something inside of you. And you'll probably get frustrated with that process, so ask God for wisdom. Oh, he's not done. Verse 6. He says, But when you ask for wisdom, you could put in there for wisdom, because that's what he's talking about. It's the whole, that's the whole context. When you ask for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt. When you ask, God, this took me by surprise. I don't like it. I didn't invite it. I don't see any way forward. I don't think my life will ever be the same. I don't know how I'm supposed to function. 
and God, I don't get it. I need context. I need to see this in broader context. I need to see it the way you see it. He says, when you ask for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt. You've got to believe that God's up to something. You've got to believe that God is not caught off guard. You've got to believe that, that there is a bigger picture. You've got to believe that there is a personal God who cares for you. He's like, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. We're fortunate we live on the coast. We're not, we're not unfamiliar with the ocean and how it operates. And I wonder, I just wonder, if this might have been a little jab at Peter. Remember, they worked together to establish the church in Jerusalem. Remember this, and Peter, everybody who had a relationship with Peter had a tenuous relationship with Peter. It was up and down. Remember the story of Peter. He sees Jesus walking on the water in the middle of a storm out in the boat. Remember that? You remember the flannel graph, right? Because that's exactly how it happened. And, and he says, Jesus, if that's you, call me to come out to you. And he gets out of the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and he takes a step on the water, and he takes another step on the water, and he's walking on the water. But then he gets a little freaked out. No, I, I would be too. You know, the whole thing shouldn't be happening. And he looks, takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he starts to sink. And I think the guy's kidded him about that. Probably for the rest of his life. Hey, remember that time? Remember that time, Peter? We were out in the, on the Sea of Galilee. Like, Shut up. Remember that time you thought you were all that and you're walking out in the water and you start to sink? He's like, yeah, I didn't see any of you guys get out of the boat. So, you know, James, where were you? You weren't even there, so be quiet. So James says, look, the one who doubts is like the person who takes their eyes off the fact that there's a faithful God who's up to something. So you can't doubt this. You can't take your eyes off the fact that there's a faithful God who's up to something. Otherwise you'll put your eyes on your circumstances. When you put your focus on your circumstances, it's going to undermine your faith. And, and you won't let perseverance finish its work because you're going to run, you're going to escape, you're going to hit the eject button. Verse 7. It says, that person should not expect to receive, and the person that doubts, that person should not expect to receive anything. He's talking about wisdom from the Lord. So let's put this all together. Here's what James is saying. And I know some of you have applied this to your difficult, trying, painful waiting room experiences and it made such a huge difference and it might have even changed the trajectory of your life from that point forward. But here's what James is saying. When you're surprised by adversity, when you're surprised and caught off guard by opposition and oppression, when the bottom drops out and you didn't see it coming, you certainly didn't deserve it, when things change and it wasn't your idea, when suddenly, through no fault of your own, your world is upside down, he says, don't assume the worst. Don't assume that God has abandoned you. Don't assume that God doesn't care. He says to us, I want you to change your way of thinking about this. So let's consider, just reconsider the whole thing. In fact, let's consider that there's the possibility that something good could come from this because this is a test of your faith. And the only way to build a mature faith is through perseverance. So God is up to something in you and around you, and he's building mature faith in you. So let's let perseverance finish its work. So in the meantime, that's the kicker. In the waiting room, he says, believe. Specifically, believe that God is at work and that God is at work in you. Our tendency is to believe that God isn't at work, not around anything that affects us, and, that, and maybe even that God doesn't care. Or that God is working on something else right now, so he's a little busy, and maybe he's lost track of what's going on in my life. You know, I haven't heard from God in a while, so I'm pretty sure he's abandoned me. And he obviously hasn't been keeping very good records, because I've been like a really good person. And James says, believe that God's at work, and that God is at work in you. What's he doing in you? He's working on your faith. 
to mature you. That is to increase and create an enduring faith and mature faith. Maturity isn't about how much you know. That, that just means you're smart. Maturity isn't about how good you are. That just means you're obedient. And that's all good. But maturity comes when the bad things happen and you choose to believe anyway and your faith remains intact anyway and you believe that God will use those circumstances and that he'll use, he'll use what he may not remove. Ooh. Never heard myself say that before. To believe that God will use what he may not remove. So as we move into the final stretch of this series, I want to I give you something. Last time, uh, we're going to do this in a minute, so no hurry. Um, last time I gave you a little card. It said uh, it was a homework assignment. It was a morning and evening prayer. And there are a few of these left on the table out there in the lobby if you want one. Today I want to give you a bookmark. You can use this to save your place in a book. <laughs> With paper pages. Or you, I would suggest I'll probably just tape it to my Kindle or my iPad or something. Uh, the point is put it somewhere where you will see it regularly on your fridge. I'll see it most regularly right there on a mirror. You know who you are. The idea is that you put it somewhere every day. On this bookmark is a prayer, and I really want to encourage you to pray this every day. It says, Heavenly Father, I believe that you'll use this even if you choose not to remove it. In my waiting room, grant me the wisdom to see as you see and courage to do as you say. I know this might sound a little extreme, but I would suggest you pray this out loud. There is something about praying out loud. I'd suggest finding a private place to do that where people won't wonder what's going on in your car. People think nothing anymore of you having a conversation by yourself in the car. So in your car, in your room, before you start your day, before you go to bed at night. Heavenly Father, I believe you'll use this even if you choose not to remove it. In my waiting room, grant me the wisdom to see as you see and courage to do as you say. When we do this, it's our way of allowing perseverance to finish its work in us. It's allowing God to build the kind of confidence in him that is so awe-inspiring that it draws people to our Heavenly Father. That's the goal. Listen to this song. When it feels like surgery And it burns like third degree Sides breaking in, and you feel that ache again, and you wonder what's giving birth. If you could let the pain of the past go.
Trust me.